You're listening to Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. From childhood favorites to classics to new and forthcoming reads, you'll hear how the people who make books happen have been influenced by the ones that they've read. In this episode, Jeanette Winterson chose Orlando by Virginia Woolf, and Nafisa Azad chose Migratude by Shelja Patel. Born in Manchester, England, Jeanette Winterson is the author of more than 20 books, including the national bestseller Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, and The Passion. She has won many prizes, including the Whitbread Award for Best First Novel, the John Llewellyn Reese Prize, the E.M. Forster Award, and the Stonewall Award. Her latest novel, Frankenstein, is an audacious love story that weaves together disparate lives into an exploration of transhumanism, artificial intelligence, and queer love. My name is Jeanette Winterson, and my recommended book is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. Orlando starts in the reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth in England in the 15th 60s, and it runs right through until the 20th century, until 1928. Uh, and it does that because it's a very early time travel novel, and it's also the first trans novel. Orlando starts out as a young nobleman and ends up as a young woman in the 20th century. So it's doing two new things at once. I didn't read Orlando for the first time when I was a student because although I did an English degree at Oxford University, which is one of the best degree courses in the world, at that time, in the 80s, we were told that there were only four great women writers anywhere ever in the entire world. This was a course from Beowulf to Sam Beckett. And those those writers were George Eliot, Jane Austen, and two of the Brontes, Charlotte and Emily. You could do Virginia Woolf, but only as a special paper if you applied. So although I'd read some of her books, I hadn't read Orlando because also at that time in the 80s, it was seen as a, as a sort of a romp and not one of her more serious or important works like Mrs. Dalloway or To the Lighthouse or, or The Waves. Um, and it was only a couple of years later when I was reading everything by Wolf again. This is when I was about 24 and I wanted to write my own first book, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Um, and women in particular need ancestors. We need to be able to find women who were there before us. You know, if you're a guy and you're starting out and you want to write, you can go anywhere. You can find anybody. They're all there. Um, and for women, it's harder. You know, and that's why women have always been doing some fancy footwork and being able to identify both with male writers, male characters, male literature. You know, we're very good at that because we were brought up on it. It's changing now, but only just. So there I was reading everything again. I came to Orlando and I thought, this is fantastic. I think the thing with Virginia Woolf is not not only is her language superb and her understanding of structure, but she's she's a brave writer. And in Orlando, she was a brave writer and a playful writer. You have to remember this is published in 1928. So it's it's a book doing something 
which wasn't that easy, not doing something which has a character who changes gender, a character whose love affairs are with women uh, as well as men. And it is the same year that Radcliffe Hall's truly terrible book, The Well of Loneliness, was published, which is enough to make you know, anybody thinking of sleeping with a woman either just slit their throat or just go and marry the first guy. But the point is, this is the same year. And while Radcliffe Hall's book about <laughs> miserable lesbian love affair uh, and someone who calls herself an invert. You know, I used to think that meant you had sex upside down when I first read it. I thought, what is an invert? <laughs> Why are they having sex upside down? Anyway, you read that and you just think, no, no, no. But And it was banned, totally banned. Virginia Woolf's Orlando um, not only was a critical hit, but also became an instant bestseller. So she she was able to just smuggle this stuff across. And everybody loved it, its wit, its charm, and because it was actually a love letter to the person she was having an affair with at the time, Vita Sackville West, she even had photographs in it, some of which were Vita, dressed up as a boy, and these were real photographs, and yet everybody thought, oh wow, you know, this is so brilliant, so clever, so funny, they didn't think we must immediately ban it, um, as they did with The Well of Loneliness. So it was a real lesson in doing something which was subversive, different, challenging, um, but which also attracted mainstream readership you know so i've never thought that anything that's different should live in a niche or or just have a you know a few crazy readers somewhere i've always thought that if you're going to write you should write for everybody you should go for the big one and just say look this is about you even though it may not be about you you know we don't just want to read books about ourselves surely every woman knows that because we spend our entire lives reading books not about ourselves (laughs) because they're written by men so what i really think is that all showed me how both how generous you can be, how far-reaching, um, how risk-taking. And, and that was a, a great propellant for someone starting out as a writer. There's a hilarious moment when we're, we're, we're passing through time and Orlando is a woman. Of course, I'm waking up as a woman, as a woman. She's a second-class citizen, so all her property is immediately sequestered uh, and all her rights and privileges go to her first male relative. Uh, you know, the book is highly political. We shouldn't forget that. It's about the status of women and how ridiculous it is that, that, that privilege, property, depend on having a dick or not, which is really all that happens because Orlando suddenly doesn't have one. And, of course, she keeps her name all the way through. She's known as the Lady Orlando, again, without comment, which is hilarious. But so here she is as, as uh, Orlando, a woman. And she's driving home at night with the, the, the famous poet and critic Alexander Pope. And as they go along, the streets are pretty dark. And when it's dark, she sits there listening to him talking about how great he is and how great men are in general. And then every so often they come under a street light and she looks at him and she thinks, why am I listening to you? You're such a jerk. I can't believe it. Look, you're a totally inadequate species of, of personhood, let alone manhood, and I have to listen to you. And then they go into the dark again and she just hears his sonorous voice and she lulls herself back into the beliefs that she knows she's supposed to hold. And this happens several Several times, and each one becomes increasingly manic and funny because Wolf is a really good comic writer, and 
And a lot of people forget that, or it's not taught. You know, people have been taught, taught Wolf, but they've never read Orlando, and they don't get that wit and comic timing that Wolf is so good at. And, you know, that situation, we've all known it, haven't we? You know, we, because the patriarchy is everywhere. We just get lulled along into thinking, you know, yes, yes, you're right, you're so great. And then we have a kind of flash of lightning. We think, what? <laughs> you're just an idiot. Why am I listening to you? I love Orlando. It's, it's, I wouldn't, I don't even want to think, talk about it as, is it, is it, is it my favorite? Because I keep going back to her book. She's just a great companion to go on the journey with whatever she's writing, whether it's her essays or letters, her nonfiction, her fiction. It, she has a wonderful mind. And of course, great writers don't die. They just go on living with us and they're available whenever we need them to be available, which is convenient. But it's a book, if nobody's read Wolf, it's the book I always say to them, look, read this first because it will surprise you and you'll love it and you'll get to hear her voice, the way she uses language, but you'll also have a very good time. I have a beautiful copy of Orlando. I've got a first edition from the Hogarth Press in 1928, and it's signed by Virginia Woolf in purple ink. In fact, I have it with me on this trip because there's some guys who want to make Orlando into a television series. So when I met them in Los Angeles, I thought I would take this copy uh, because it's impressive. So it is very impressive. So she is with me now, and it's it's the kind of book that I will just pick up and, and, and dip into for fun and for pleasure. I mean, the thing with novels is that when, when you've read them once, you don't have to read them all the way through again, but you can just jump in and out. You know, I mean, the trouble is we often treat prose as though it has to go from A to Z, and it doesn't. Uh, you can then enjoy yourself in there and just swim around wherever you like, and that's what I do. I sometimes just take it down off the shelf and read a little bit and remember how good it is. That was Jeanette Winterson, recommending Orlando by Virginia Woolf. Her novel, Frankenstein, published by Grove Press, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Winterson World. That's W-I-N-T-E-R-S-O-N-W-O-R-L-D. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by Katie Hoffman. 
The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant rivals to lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gene and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Nafisa Azad is a self-identified island girl. She has hurricanes in her blood and dreams of a time she can exist solely on mangoes and pineapples. Born in Lautoka, Fiji, she currently resides in BC, Canada, where she reads too many books, watches too many K-dramas, and writes stories about girls taking over the world. Her debut YA fantasy, The Candle and the Flame, was released by Scholastic in 2019. Set in a city along the Silk Road that is a refuge for those of all faiths, it follows a young woman threatened by the war between two clans of powerful jinn. My name is Nafisa Azad, and the book I'm recommending is a collection of poetry called My Gratitude by Shailja Patel. The title is very much in, t- in tune with what it's uh, the book, the poetry is about. I would classify this poetry as activist poetry, and it is full of mig- migration. Uh, the theme is migration, and specifically from the immigrants' perspective. So it's about lots of stuff, but mostly about immigration and how the immigrant experience uh, colors a lot of lives. For example, what happened in Kenya and just basically every little thing that an immigrant goes through. I actually read an excerpt of it in a review somewhere on the internet and then I was so struck by the excerpt that I felt I had to have it. And this wasn't this isn't really readily available. You can't just go in a store and find it. You have to order it to say, I got mine from Book Depository because that was the only place I could find it at. And I got it and I read it all in one day and cried a lot. And it was amazing. <laughs> it's very on the nose. The poetry just keeps you on your toes and thinking. I had never read anything like this before. And it was just sort of electrifying when you read like, the history that we are taught is dry and in terms of um, perspectives we see within the facts. It's, it's difficult to put the people in here, but in poetry, the history comes alive. I do tend to read a lot of poetry because I guess it's my dark days as a British um, a literature a graduate in a BA, of BA. <laughs> I have a BA in uh, English literature. So a lot of times I was forced to read this these really famous canonical poets and I was so annoyed by that like the British poets that everyone loves and I could really stand because they talked about things that I couldn't empathize with you know having too much money <laughs> so once I got a chance I I feel like I like 
um, modern poetry better than the whole classical poetry. Because while I have read the foundational stuff that every student of literature is forced to read, I never really got into it. And then I came across modern poets like Fatima Ashkar and Ashail Patel. The idea that I could read people who look like me writing stuff that I that, that that was pertinent to me in poetry that was amazing. It's similarly when you come across books that that have a familiar experience that talk about familiar tackle familiar experiences and see reflections of yourself in poetry as well as in literature. It's it's, it's a grand feeling. I used to be able to read without any thought when I was just simply a writer without being published. But once I became published, reading actually became more difficult because you cannot shut off the author brain every time you're reading. You're saying, oh, this person did it like this. Maybe I should try it. And then this there's somehow a block to getting sunk into the story. But as you said, with poetry, because it's not the medium in which I regularly write, I can sink into like I will pause and just marvel at a verse or a, something, a particular symbol or imagery, but not to the extent that oh you know I wish I could have done that. <laughs> so yeah, it's much easier to sink into poetry compared to a novel, especially when you are drafting your own work. I think my gratitude was very uh, formative for Candle in the Flame. Uh, while The Candle in the Flame is, um, I would say, a bit utopian in terms of its portrayal mm. of immigrants and uh, migration, uh, what I read in uh, Migratude was so completely opposite that I wanted to create somewhere that would be vastly different and contradict the usual experience. For example, I can tell you how um, reading poetry directly influenced The Candle in the Flame. There's this poem in here. It, it talks about languages. And in The Candle in the Flame, I use many different languages because I feel like languages are a, a wonderful way of uh, expressing diversity without actually, you know, saying the, the color of his skin or, you know, just talking explicitly. You so the presence of languages just automatically leads a person to think that there are more than one type of uh, people here. So there's this poem in Migratude called Dreaming in Gujarati. And I, I will read this excerpt. It says, listen, my father speaks Urdu, language of dancing peacocks, rose water fountains. Even its curses are beautiful. He speaks Hindi, suave and melodic, earthy Punjabi. Salty rich as Saag Paneer, coastal Swahili with Arabic. He speaks Gujarati, solid ancestral pride. Five languages, five different walls. Yet English shrinks him down before white men, who think their flat, cold, spiky walls make the only reality. And I, when I read this, I felt it's true that uh, in our culture, if a person doesn't speak English, we do tend to look down as somehow lacking even without considering how many more different languages they might know, excluding English. So this is one of the ways in which poetry has uh, influenced me. It, uh, because with poetry, you cannot have any extraneous words. So you have to get to the point within the number of words given, but it's not like succinct or staccato. There's a certain um, music to the verses. So I feel like that too is, you'll find that too in my novels or writing 
or at least I'm trying. <laughs> it's, it's always an ongoing process not to have, uh, not to talk about everything else except the plot. I feel like because this is not the kind of poetry that your teachers, sadly, would teach, <laughs> reading this could be an act of rebellion against what the mainstream would have you believe. This would be the kind of thing to read when you want to get angry or want to feel really keenly. And even if you do not read poetry, a lot of times it feels like prose uh, shaped as poetry. And in a way, it's easier to take in these kinds of information in the poetry form compared to when it's just simply prose. So I would recommend this to people who want to challenge their views and who want to take a peek into what it's like to be an immigrant and who are ready, who are definitely ready ready for varying perspectives. There's this poem in here called Eater of Death, and it's based on the true story of Bibi Sardar, whose husband and seven children were killed at breakfast by U.S. airstrikes on Kabul in October 2001. So... This is not an easy collection to read, and it's not something you would read in one um, sitting. You'd have to read a poem and then just digest it. But I feel like it will change your worldview, and it will make you think in ways you've never thought before, and from perspectives you've probably never considered before. So, yeah, it's it would be an act of rebellion. It would be an act of ownership, reclaiming narratives that others may might have taken over. I hope I've sold it. <laughs> it's it's really great. I mean, I've just skimmed the surface of what the like she she actually used to perform a lot of these poems along with the sari she saris she inherited from her mom. So it was an actual performance, and I'm so sad that I will never get to see it because she no longer does it. But it's electrifying, is the word. <laughs> That was Nafiza Azad, recommending Migratude by Shailja Patel. Her debut novel, The Candle and the Flame, published by Scholastic, is now available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Nafiza A. That's N-A-F-I-Z-A-A. Many thanks to Jeanette Winterson and Nafiza Azad for joining us and sharing some favorites. Thanks also go out to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you're enjoying the show, please do drop by on Apple Podcasts to leave us a rating or a review. We're always happy to see the feedback, and reviews help other bookish listeners to find our show. You can find show notes, including titles mentioned, at bookriot.com recommended, and you can email us feedback, personal favorites, and suggestions at recommended at bookriot.com. 